Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you surely man. A few weeks back, we got an email from Paul O'Brien, a disgruntled Manchester City fan who cycles to work every day in Washington, D.C., waiting in vain for what he would consider an adequate amount of Manchester City coverage on this podcast. Well, Paul, hold on to your bicycle helmet, because today's show will be filled with City Chat, although you might not like all of it. You'll definitely like some of it, maybe not all of it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Second Captain's Football Podcast. Hi, Ken. Hi, Kieran. Hello, Owen. Hi, Owen. How are you? I'm good, Ken. On the field, City's dismantling of Spurs was... Quite spectacular, even by their own spectacular performances, judging by that Amazing. whistle, yeah. Yeah, that was... Hopefully Paul hasn't fallen off his bike as a result of that ear That was the collective whistle of the football universe. As Spurs went psycho again. Harry Kane, Deli Ali, what were you thinking? Teddy. What are you, Deli? Deli. You're not a hatchet man, stop it. Imagine he'd, he'd actually broken Kevin De Bruyne. I thought Harry Kane was officer class as well. I mean... <sighs> That was not the act of a gentleman. No, it certainly it was. It, most certainly was not, Ken. It certainly wasn't. It was. It was a bit of rush, rush of blood to Harry. Sitting Kane's. at the wrong table at the mess hall, if you ask me, <laughs> Ken. He, his noble head, yeah, uh, suddenly fizzing with a rush of blood, and he tries to kill Raheem Sterling, uh, and then Deli Ali tried to amputate Kevin De Bruyne's leg. Very sad. Uh, to see them like that, Tottenham only again. served to make Kevin De Bruyne angry. Once again, as usual, not getting sent off. When Tottenham do this kind of thing, they don't, they don't get sent off. The referee just prefers to let them at it. They have a lot of Clattenburg-type referees, apparently. <laughs> Spurs, Spurs are about to blow again. Everybody stand back. <laughs> yeah, this is really entertaining. There's no need to send them all off. Um, and then De Bruyne dusts himself down, blasts the ball through Hugo Lloris. I mean, there was one angle on the, on the goal, which was so epic. You know, the, it was it was from the left touchline. So De Bruyne is moving from right to left across screen. And it's all in this fog. It's like they fill the stadium with smoke to make it look better. Mm. And he just hammers this ball, which the goal, usually this isn't the case, but the goalkeeper getting a hand on it just made it look better. <laughs> usually it spoils it a little bit. But this on this occasion, it actually improved the goal. And... Uh, you know, he celebrates, and he, he pays tribute to his, his mate David Silva um, in the celebration. And really, I mean, I've, when will you see a more a more spirited, a more talented, a more beautiful, dare I say, own side? You know it's a good team when there are videos going around showing the footballing skills of their goalkeeper, who looks like one of the best players in Europe at the moment. Just outfield players, I mean. I'm not even talking about the Eddie Saves or anything like that. He pinged that Stephen Cluxton-style 70-yarder was it to Raheem Sterling out in the out in the right wing? He hit, hit a couple of them, but it looks like okay. Actually, we'll, we'll we'll press this high up. We'll see what he's made of. Then he pings at seventy yards over the, t- the it's head. It's the ones like shoelaces. Yeah, it's the ones like that are actually land in the center circle for like Sané or someone. They're the ones that are actually just ridiculous because he's like lofting it over players, dropping it in into an area where there are probably five opposition players within like fifteen yards of where the ball lands, mm. but it just lands perfectly for. I mean, it's just a footballer playing really good football, but it just 
he's wearing gloves yeah. as well <laughs> and a different colored jersey. Something feels a bit off about this. It just yeah. feels a little unfair. The bit that <laughs> our friend in Washington may not want to hear about today is, but he's going to have to, is a chat we're going to have with a human rights researcher called Nicholas McGeehan, who's written a piece highlighting the questions around Man City's ownership that he feels most people in football aren't asking anymore, Ken. Is that about right, very briefly? Yeah. I mean, There's some uncomfortable questions to, to be answered. Well, you know, it's a it's a dilemma. I mean, to what to what? I mean, it's not as though these questions have not been asked, but it's like how many times can you ask the same question? Mm. You know, it's like what at what point is it ever is it kind of ever legitimate to talk about the football without speaking about what underpins the football? Um, is that not in a way what what sports journalism should be doing, focusing on football? You know, to what extent is the responsibility to speak about other things as well? I mean, I think that that probably both should be spoken about. I don't think that, you know, what we're going to talk to Nicholas about invalidates the fact that Man City are putting together a spectacular team. But it's good to be aware of what's happening here. All right, we have our World Service members covered this Christmas and New Year. We'll be making our annual pilgrimage, guys, to our Christmas cabin in the snow to spend the big day together, just the five of us. Oh, great. Maybe Richie, if he can make it into studio, um, if if he can make it to the cabin. Yeah, of course. Out in the I mean, wilds. it's Christmas Day as well. On you know yeah, when we're course, it's hard recording that, so it public, can be difficult. Yes, yeah, public um, transport mm. and yes. so forth. This week we have a new political podcast with Ken coming up. We've interviews with Joe Ward. Last week we discussed the Chris Froome affair, and also spoke to Leinster and Ireland's Adam Byrne. And that's all before we get to our gangs all here shows, where if you're not a member, you're missing out on a whole host of great debates. Say hello to our listeners, everybody! Great job! Hey, hey, the gang's all here. We're gonna swing as one. Well, I don't think he's the best footballer, but he definitely wanted it more than anybody else. You, you know? I think, because I mean, he's nowhere near as good. The, 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 I, think, I think that's it. I mean, to go back to your question at the start, Messi or Ronaldo? Well, Messi or Ronaldo, what? Did you have a winner's speech ready to go, written? No, not really, to be honest. I have a few things in my head, but like, I was happy to see how the day was going to go, and I was ready to talk. If I had to make that speech, I would have managed. <laughs> would, would, would you be worried about tempting fate or anything like that? Do no, you believe in any of that kind of stuff? No, I wouldn't believe in any of that, to be honest. I have no problem writing something down or keeping it in my head. wouldn't make any difference either way if you're going to win game you're going to win it. There's a bit of me thinks, aren't we a bit lazy? No, Messi, Ronaldo, and then we'll think about someone else. Okay, so the answer to my question was Ronaldo. Sid Lowe, it's been absolutely brilliant and really appreciate you travelling over there. Sid Lowe, everybody! Yeah, Sid Lowe joined us in Dublin. That's going to be broadcast on the World Service over Christmas, as will our debate about Conor McGregor. That's going to be out this week. You also missed our exclusive interviews with Killian O'Connor. You heard a bit from Killian there and Joey Carberry. So what the bloody hell are you waiting for? Secondcaptains.com, five euro a month plus VAT. If you're not going to treat yourself at Christmas time, then when are you going to treat yourself? I mean, come on, really. Secondcaptains.com, go and do it now. Let's report on sport, please, Ken. Is it the end of the title race? I mean, uh, you know, when I seek the answer to any question like that, which doesn't really have an answer, I seek, I seek statistical guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, Expected points. Five thirty-eight on. Not that I, I mean, I don't want to refer to five thirty-eight as though it was like the bloody stone tablets, you know. But we uh, all got burned last November, Ken. Well, they did say they said. Do you remember Trump, those two lines that I kept checking in on every day for the last six months of 2016? Yeah, yeah Trump. Trump never actually led, and therefore they never actually thought he was more likely to win. But they did sort of say, "Look, you know, we gave him like a one in three chance." Yeah. It's, a pretty, it's a pretty good. Going to ask for a little bit better than that in a two-horse race when that's <laughs> basically your entire business model to be right about something like this. But uh, they're giving Man City a 97 percent chance of winning the league, so. A one in thirty chance, roughly, of slightly less than one in thirty chance of them not winning at this point, uh, which is you know as as close to a sure thing as as you're going to get. And they do. I mean, they have been playing amazing football. I mean, the question now is is whether Manchester City are going to establish themselves as one of the greatest teams in the history of the league. It's not. It's not so much about whether they win the title as whether they win the title of titles, champion of champions. Better than your treble winners, better than your Cristiano Ronaldo, Manchester United team, better than your Invincibles and your Jose Mourinho points record holders, better than all those guys. Are they one of those teams now that 
fans of other clubs maybe take Manchester United out of it fans of the other clubs besides Manchester United are maybe willing them to go on and do that they're <laughs> sorry fans she's say like fans of other clubs besides Manchester obviously not Manchester United fans aren't willing Man City to go on and do this yeah. but if you're a Liverpool fan or even a Chelsea fan maybe would you look at this and think we could have another one of the the great teams of all time and I applaud them and I'd like to see that happen because otherwise you just I see this. Otherwise you see this. So. Well, they're going to win the league. So otherwise you see this boring season where they're just they're going to win by eight or ten or twelve points, and it makes no difference to any other team what amount they win by. So why not enjoy the football for football's sake? They but, do seem to be one of those teams that aren't hated by too many other clubs besides Manchester United. Well, give them time, Alan. Give yeah. Given time, I think they can. I think they can manage that. I mean, I saw. Did you see Conte's coming through? I mean, because all this good news about Man City, there might be even more good news. Vir- Virgil Van Dijk. Virgil van Dijk has been so impressed by what he sees that he's now considering, you know, there was a lot of talk he might join Liverpool. But frankly, you know, if you were Virgil van Dijk, and on the one hand you'd had Jurgen Klopp begging you with tears in his eyes, please, please come. You know, like Brent, you know, don't, please don't join Manchester City. Like Klopp like that. Or Guardiola saying, you know, bringing you around like the the finest training centre in the world. You know, to join the best team in the world that's going to win everything for the next five years. Check out my bomber jacket. It's pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> Stone <laughs> Island. Come? Yeah. yeah. Come, uh, join the party we got here. And, and, and Antonio Conte is saying, we, have to, we can't let this happen. Like, the league can't let this happen. I, I warn you that if one club is allowed to sign all of the best players, it will be very difficult for anybody else to fight for the, for the title. Conte is an Italian. He's, he spent his career at Juventus. He understands the monopoly position in football. He, he understands how difficult it can be for other clubs, other teams in competition to, you know, make it happen when one club has sort of got its tentacles all, all, all up in everyone's business. Now, maybe that's not going to be true in the case of England. I mean, there's an optimistic view which says, well, Manchester City, sure, are powering out ahead of the pack, but it's good to have strong rivals. You know, if if there had been no Lionel Messi, would Cristiano Ronaldo have scored 500-odd goals? You know, maybe he would have been happy with 350. Or, you know, for, you know, these these great competitors spur each other on to greater heights, such that, you know, in the way that when, when Mourinho's Chelsea kind of smashed the league for a couple of years and looked as though they were kind of unstoppable, it's like, how can anyone compete with this? They can buy everybody. They're just buying players you know, no one can stop them if, if, if you know, with this money behind them. In fact, they, they could be stopped. You know, Ferguson and Manchester United put together a team which was better than that. And, you know, after a couple of seasons, from a, from a pretty bad place that Manchester United were in in 2005, by 2007 they were winning the league again and then winning the Champions League the following year. Would that have happened if it hadn't been for this challenge, if it hadn't been for Chelsea saying, this is the standard now? If you want to play at the top level, you've got to get to the standard. You know, you can't, you, you can't have, I mean, who were the Manchester United, the, the stellar United lineup of 04, 05? Jemba Jemba. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get back to the top with Jemba Jemba. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have to do a bit better than that. It sounds like a fridge magnet. Jemba Jemba. No, you're not going to get back to the top of, with, with Jemba Jemba. It sounds like kind of a, a wise quote that you might mm. read on a yeah. fridge magnet for your football quote. fan. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they and they ended up with this real um, this Vidich Ferdinand Van der Sar defense. I think really the, the 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 big plus point for all the other clubs watching and perhaps despairing of Man City's dominance is that Guardiola will get bored or flame out uh, in like two or three years. Well, there you go again. There you go again, Carol. You haven't been reading today's um, today's updates from Manchester City, in which. Uh, High, highly placed sources sketch yeah. out a future in which Pep Guardiola stays on for a to build a dynasty. The Spaniard, as he's referred to in the Guardian's report, which I'm not sure about to be honest, <laughs> I'm not sure Guardiola would be delighted to be referred to as a Spaniard. Uh, the Catalan, mm. some would say, uh, has been so impressed by what he's found in Manchester. You know, who wouldn't be? I mean, that, in Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome degree. 34 hectares, you know, billions of uh, euros of investment, the finest football, globe-spanning football corporation in the world. Who wouldn't want to be the king of that yeah. for longer, well, than, all longer have, than 18 more months? Yeah. I, well, all I have in my head now is uh, 
Guardiola just like putting uh, the Champions League trophy in a vast in a uh, cardboard box and just wheeling it into some vast warehouse full of other Manchester City uh, trophies, like in uh, uh, Charles Foster Kane's Xanadu. <laughs> I mean, it's for, for what I can remember, Ken, uh, Charles Foster Kane wasn't exactly having the time of his life. No. I fear maybe Guardiola might think this is a great idea to hang around here with all this money. Well, he lost. Uh, take some, you know, job at the top, but it's lonely at the top. He He's lost not sight even of training it. anyone anymore. He's just wandering around the Etihad. No one's speaking to him. I don't like it, Ken. Well, he's, he's gone. He's gone in 80 months for the man's own sanity. If it ever does get to that stage, I'm sure that Guardiola will, will move on. But, you know, he's already a year and a half in. I mean, people sort of forget he actually did do last season. Man, so They weren't too good. No. You know, he bought Claudio Bravo, who was a complete disaster. They might have won the league if he'd been able to sign a good goalkeeper. But he bought Bravo. Wolf. What was that? Oh, that was that was Stones. As Miguel reported, Miguel Delaney reported that... that Stones' instruction is literally never play a ball off the ground. Do not play a ball. I don't want to see the ball leave the ground. If it leaves your foot, it's got to travel along the grass. That's the, that's the instruction to John Stones from Guardiola. But boss, I keep giving the ball away. We keep letting in goals. doesn't matter. Keep doing it. And that's, uh, I suppose, that's principles in action. You know, Stones has, been, has got used to it. He's doing a lot better this year. And it helps to have a goalkeeper behind him who doesn't throw the ball in every time it comes near him. You know, that, that was the problem last season. Um, with uh, with Bravo, um, but you know, so that was so that was t- today's reports. Are Guardiola going to stay on ten, maybe ten years? We know that maybe Ferguson's too much, but ten years, you know, ten years of Guardiola. They'll be using Champions League trophies as ashtrays. Well, not as ashtrays, obviously. Something else, something more modern that you would use the Champions League trophy as some kind of a container, a, p- a plant pot. Um, you know, this this is. This is what it's going to be like at Man City. And, and this is after last week's uh, blitz in the Guardian, the Financial Times. Uh, Giles Tremlett with a big piece in the Guardian, which, you know, I mean, is interesting stuff to read. Uh, he uses the metaphor of a carrier battle group to describe Manchester City. And it's not, enti- it's not entirely like ominous or, or a hostile metaphor. It's kind of almost, whoa, whoa, whoa look at this. This is magnificent. Look at the... The uh, USS Man City carrier group steaming past. There at the center is the two-mile-long flagship Manchester City, uh, surrounded by its uh, host of ancillary vessels, supporting and supplying the... uh, supplied and shielded by the vessels around it, the flagship of this new football flotilla, Manchester City FC, will continue its already startling rise to become the world's greatest club. So that is the tone of this article. I mean, it it is a an article about the business vision of Manchester City and, and Ferran Soriano, a man so posh that even though he's from Spain, well, Catalonia, he plays rugby. Why wouldn't he? Six foot three inches tall, wouldn't have got very far at La Masia. Um, so he was a second row forward. Um, well, rugby's quite popular in Catalonia, no? In Barcelona, where he's from, I'm not sure. Maybe more further up the coast, but I guess further up the coast where he where he hangs out, possibly in his second home. I'm not sure. The man is posh. Uh, he was a uh, obviously big-time um, director at Barcelona. He was part of that big 2003 takeover. They kind of revolutionized the club. You know, he was one of the key guys there um, in that uh, in that uh, election and, and subsequent few years of Barcelona. They kind of got it back to the top of the game. And in this uh, article, he talks about how he realized something. He saw something early that a lot of people had had missed a lot of people in football Leo Messi no uh, this was this was before Leo Messi I mean Leo Messi was only like uh, 16 when these guys took over uh, Barcelona was he 16 80, 87 2003 might, might have been 15 15 to 15 or 16 years old he wasn't he, he wasn't a, a player at that stage not a senior player it was more the fact that the un, the untapped commercial potential of football um how is it that we have a global following of half a billion fans, or Notional Team X has a global following of 500 million fans, and yet only makes 500 million euros? That's one euro per fan, Ceciliano, which is utterly ridiculous. In business terms, this was a combination of a lot of love and literally no love. So what can we do, Ceciliano? The answer was pretty simple. Maybe too simple, but very bold. You have to be global, but local. You have to go to Indonesia... And open a shop. So, uh, 
Yeah. Basically, monetize the fan base was his, was his insight. Let's get more money. The only problem is when he pitched it at Barcelona, people were like, why would we do that? What's the point? Why would we even do this? We're, we're, we're a cultural institution. We're, we're based in the city. We're, we're a sporting and cultural institution. It's for the people of Barcelona. It's about, you know, our, our civic pride, our recreation, all of these things. We're not the East India Company. Like, why, do, why would we want to go out there and start grabbing money? Grab, 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 grab. This isn't about that. So, sorry, I know I ended up having to leave. Um, managed to span air for a while at the uh, airline, um, the not, not thriving airline, before eventually being uh, hired by Manchester City, a team that had more of a, were more interested in his vision of how this might uh how this might work. A global brand and lots of local brands. Were they not more interested in using him as a means to get Pep Guardiola, which is seen as maybe a big part of the reason that they wanted him there. It was a master plan to get Pep. It was more than that, you think? Soriano actually does have a vision that he should be credited for? It was more than that. Uh, certainly Guardiola is a big part of it, and that's certainly part of why they hired Chica Begierstein as well. Um, but, you know, this guy, to be fair to Soriano, if you're looking at... Um, a football club that had done impressive work at corporate level or got impressive results because it's, it's kind of judged on results. It's like, who's, who really did this? Was this Ferran Soriano or was it Ronaldinho? <laughs> you know, Ronaldinho was, was the guy scoring all the goals, but Soriano was the executive who was kind of credited at board level with overseeing this, this resurrection of a great club. And, uh, and when I say resurrection, it's not just that they went from a, a bad situation they were in and, uh, 2001, 2, 3, to being the best football team again in Europe, which they were by 2005, 6, but also uh, like doubling their revenue, you know, catching up almost with Manchester United in that period, having been miles behind them. So impressive results all around. Who are the, you know, let's, let's poach some of these guys who are responsible. Um, so um, he meets with Marty Edelman, who's a lawyer working for City over in, uh, over in New York City, who actually says to him, as reported by Giles Tremlett, Charles Tremblay, he's, he's a good journalist, incidentally, the guy who's, who's done this piece. Any great idea needs to have a host, right? And we were a great host. Host! He uses the word host! I think he means like a host and a party host, mm. rather than, a, you know, a creature which is invaded by another creature mm. that lays its eggs in the creature and that takes over its flesh. That is people think, though, when they hear that phrase. It's a phrase that Ken has used, I believe. Mm. So together they set off to build a, a global football empire with tentacles everywhere. Um... And, it, and the article lists off a few of the things, a few of the speed bumps they've hit along the way, you know, fined by for breaching financial fair play regulations, doing a bit of trying to work around certain regulations, say, oh, the, our club in Australia has can't afford to buy this player because of the rules on spending. Well, what about Man City? Buy him and loan that player, the, loan that club the player. So they did that, and then Australian League were like, hang on, you can't do that. <laughs> it's blatantly abusing the rules. So they made a rule that you can't, you can't do that. If in the first year after being signed, you can't just loan a player immediately. So, you know, we'll have to find another way. So there's, there's a few of those things. There's always people trying to bring you down. You know, when, you're trying to, when you're trying to go up, there's always haters and losers. There's people like Javier Tebas. Uh, in Spain, you know, he's with the Spanish League and he's saying, these guys are, are ruining football. You know, Qatar and Abu Dhabi, they're, they're driving inflation. They're using their money to get around the rules and all this kind of stuff. You get all these, you get all the complainers and moaners um, bringing negative vibes. So it kind of talks about, about those. And it sort of lays out the vision. I mean, Soriano talks about his artistic challenge. I just love the way he calls it an artistic challenge. I mean, this is a guy who's managing this immensely wealthy... Um, uh, immensely well capitalized business. He, he can blow anyone out of the water e economically, financially. He can buy clubs. He's talking, you know, you we're buying clubs, not players. You know, um, he's talking about stuff like inflation. You know, uh, uh, our brand is perfect because it is city. And we know he can add that word to any city. You know, New York City, Melbourne City, Manchester City. It's, it's so you can see how it all comes, almost as though it was designed. Um, but uh, inflation in football is not driven, according to Fern Soriano, by wealthy owners, but by demanding fans. It's the, it was the fans. Uh, it's very simple. 
He said, very simple. The industry is growing. Ultimately, it goes back to the clients. These are the fans who want to watch good football and are ready to pay. So clubs have more money to spend, but the number of highly skilled or top players generated each year does not change. So you've got more money chasing the same number of assets. Inflation. That's exactly what happened in Paris. We can remember that. I can remember how the crowds gathered in the, that hot July, you know, around the Bastille and the, the Louvre, you know, demanding, demanding Paris, uh, demanding the change, action from the owners. We demand money spent on the team and throwing money over the walls of the Parc de Prince, yeah. Yeah. Throw, to, which, which ultimately they collected up all the coins that were thrown by the fans over the stadium into the pitch, collected them up and drove them into a fleet, put them into a fleet of trucks, drove them down the coast to Barcelona and brought Neymar back. Yeah, I remember the YouTube video of all that. Yeah. It's good. It was amazing. The same thing with Mbappe, of course. The fans uh, did a whip round. Uh, 160 million euros went to Monaco. And that's what's driven the inflation here. The people have spoken. It's simple. It's simple, says Ferran Soriano. It's simple. That's what's happening. It's a typical make or buy challenge. You can't buy in the market, he says. You can't buy in the market, says the chief executive of Manchester City. So you have to make. So they're doing both. You know, it's like, yeah, we're going to make our own players, our own Messi's, our own Javi's. It's, it means spending a lot of money on academies, coaches, and transfers for young players. It's like venture capital and that if you invest 10 million each in 10 players, you just need one to get to the top. He's going to be worth 100 million. It's like such a great vision of football. I, mm. I'm just falling in love with his vision. You know? CFGs, City Football Groups, integrated web of clubs, all, in theory, playing the same style of football. In this system, we control exactly what they do. The coaching is exactly the same. The playing style is exactly the same, says Soriano to Charles Trump. And imagine a, a huge, a, a world-spanning empire of clubs, all in the same color, with the same philosophy, the same style, all controlled by the same nerve center. <laughs> you know, this is beautiful, isn't it? It is. This is what a beautiful vision this is. Glocalization. Kieran. Oh, sorry. Glocalization. Oh, you know what I thought? The one thing this story was missing was some utterly meaningless catch word yeah. mind meld. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but there we go. Consciously established a, a single corporate culture around the world, which in some cases extends wearing the same sky blue shirts. Fernando Pons, a sports business partner at Deloitte in Spain, sees this as a prime example of what consultants have dubbed glocalization, a concept that implies taking a global product but adapting to local. Get it. Markets. A Girona or New York City fan will almost certainly also become a city fan, he said. Uh, apparently, for instance, I know uh, Man City are looking at buying a club in China. Obviously, it seems like a you know, logical next step, you know. Uh, put off by rumors of chaos and corruption, and then by a price bubble. The market is now more rational, he said, and the league is more structured. Rational. I love this. Right, we're talking about a rational market at Manchester City. Uh, will City Football Group ever match a Coca-Cola, Disney, or Google for size or value? Charles Tremendous? No, is the answer. <laughs> no, I mean, although I would like to see the kind of planet we would have become if it did. If, imagine City was as big as Google. Like, we, were, we would all be sitting here in... Well, we'd, we wouldn't be wearing the, the outfits. We're too old. We'd be wearing those purple parkas that all the uh, Man City staff wear. Yeah, yeah. You know, like that makes them look like almost Oompa Loompas dancing, dancing around, giant Oompa Loompas dancing, dancing around Guardiola. All monogrammed. How many guys are there? Did you see the photo they tweeted? The, the David Silva. David, David Silva missed the game, you know, for, for personal reasons. They were paying various tributes to him. They tweeted a photo from the dressing room. Do you know how many people were in that photo? No, I didn't Like 51 people. Like, I was like, how many of these guys are there? I mean, I can recognize some of them are very famous footballers, some of the best players. I'm just, who are all these people? It's, it's just, it, the scale of the operation is, is stunning. I mean, if, if it does become Disney or Google, I mean, the whole planet will just, be, uh, will just be a machine to convert, like, humans and resources, natural resources, into city footballing assets if it becomes that scale. So I, I don't know if, the, if that is ultimately the plan. This has been a thoroughly depressing 10 minutes, Ken. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> well, look, wait wait until we talk to Nick McGeehan. Because I, I kind of watched them on Saturday. I thought, that was pretty bloody good. Oh, it's amazing. This is the thing. This is the whole, this is the whole crux of like, like the whole thing. It's like, that is a brilliant team. As a football fan, you're like, yeah, these guys, these guys know what they do. These guys, you've got to respect this, you know? Coach is absolutely at the top of his game. Players are all playing out of their skin. Sterling, Sané, De Bruyne, you know, Silva wasn't there the other day, but has been brilliant all season, Jesus, you know, everywhere, 
people you just see flourishing talent you know you see the fulfillment of of a dream of a football dream of all these players careers everything is just beautiful and then you, <laughs> you hear more about it you're like can i separate what's happening in the field from this and remember the, the piece that i've been talking about here is broadly a positive piece mm-hmm. you know like I'm not Giles Tremblay piece with Soriano, yeah. Giles Tremblay piece. It's it's broad. It's broadly positive. You know, it's it's kind of saying these these guys. Here's here's a story about some ambitious guys who have a plan to change the world. It's one of those types of pieces. You know, it's not like picking mm. them apart saying, well, what about human rights? I mean, we're talking to Nick McGee, who's written a different kind of piece in a little while. Um, but even even the positive piece to me just is like, oh God, this is awful. I I fear and loathe everything about this vision. What's, what, what's, so, what's so horrible about that? Just this horrible global empire with everything, everyone wearing the same little shirt and playing the same 4-3-3 football. Like, what? Why are we doing... This is awful. You know, why, why is this? Why? I mean, obviously, it's, I can understand why you would do it in the sense that the, the more entrenched... You've got your little Uruguayan feeder club and your Spanish feeder club and you've got your American foothold and you've got your little pied de... What's it called? Pied de toi? Is it pied de terre? I shouldn't use words, foreign <laughs> words I don't even know how to pronounce, in China and Australia, you know, you've got all this and you can see, okay, who are the best players in our network and we've got all the information, we've got all the prices and we can sell this player to that play, that club and, you know, we can not sell this player to that club and, you know, we, oh, you're just like, Jesus, you know, I feel nostalgic, I feel nostalgic for when it was just like a sport, you know, here we are, we've got our little club, we're running it here. This is like, what is this? What is the point of this? Pied de Ken. He got it right second time around. A small living unit usually located in a large city some distance away from an individual's primary residence. Yeah. So that sounds about right. That's what I was going for. Um, but, you know, that was that's that's the... Uh, I mean, it's like this. Uh, the people, Nick McGeehan, for instance, will, will talk to us a bit about what he sees as some, some serious problems, some more serious problems with the sort of city... Ownership and it's it's like the stuff that people will have heard. And we you know we were speaking we were speaking about the workers' cup recently in Qatar. The whole question of what's happening over there, building the the World Cup, building the infrastructure for the World Cup. You got a lot of guys on like two hundred dollars a a month, you know, in working in pretty terrible conditions. Um, I would call it exploitation. The World Cup is going to happen. I'm sure it's, the stadiums will be beautiful. It will all look great. Can you? You know, how do you morally reconcile these things? And it's like, you know, the Sistine Chapel. The Sistine Chapel, the painting on the, the roof of the Sistine Chapel is by Michelangelo. It's like one of the great works of art of, you know, the West. It's commissioned by Pope Julius, a bloodthirsty warlord uh, and killer. You know, a mass-murdering psychopath who, who used the papacy to exterminate his enemies. You know, does anyone think of that when they look at the Sistine Chapel? You know, are they, he paid for it. It wouldn't have happened if he hadn't said, you're doing this. I don't know if Michelangelo even was that interested in the commission, but he thought he'd better do it. You know, it's like, okay, I'll, uh, I'll do that for you. And, uh, and, and so it came, into, it came into being. The person who commissioned it was not a good person. Um, maybe part of the reason he had money to, to pay on such a fancy paint job was all the pillaging and <laughs> pillaging and looting that his troops had been carrying out across, you know, central Italy. Uh, how did, where does one, you know, do you have to condemn the Sistine Chapel for, for all this? It's built on blood, Murph, is what I'm saying. We've got more Man City to talk about, Murph, before <laughs> you come back in on that one. So let's talk about Antoine Griezmann's Well, let's first problem. of all, let's first of all talk about Paddy Barkley, Owen, because I was watching this yesterday on and off on Twitter. Paddy Barkley is a football journalist of some renown. Um, so what happened was uh, some uh, betting firm tweeted a photo of uh, a fan at the darts at the Ali Pali done up to look like Diane Abbott. So the fan was, had, uh, was in blackface, had a black wig on and was holding a uh, little card that said 190, which as we know is not a darts score. But the joke seems to be that Diane Abbott is so innumerate that she might think 190 or something. That, that was my interpretation of what the joke was. Diane Abbott is a black politician for those who yes, black aren't labor, aware, a black, labor politician. A black Labour politician who, according to something I read uh, a while ago in the election, received, I believe, like half of all of the ab- online abuse directed at... Uh, MPs. 
during the yeah over the course of, yeah, cycle, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is the, you the know, most abused uh, by race. a mile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like for whatever reason, she has become a lightning rod for uh, racists of all uh, of all ilks. Yes. So they t- their tweet was something on the lines of, "Oh, an early runner for best uh, outfit of the night," or something like that. They they were they were like, "Ha, oh, this, this is quite funny." Um, David Lammy. Uh, who is uh, an MP, um, uh, tweeted, I can't believe that in 2017 a bookmaker is sharing photos of someone in blackface and then telling people to stop taking it so seriously. Racism and misogyny is not a laughing matter. I stand by at Hackney Abbott, who puts up with so much disgusting abuse. To which Paddy Barkley, Paddy Barkley seeing this, was like, what's he on about? So Paddy Barkley tweeted, racism and misogyny? How do you explain either of those? Having someone dress up as you is hardly abuse of any description. And, you know, a million palms went to a million faces. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of, quite a lot of people tweeted saying, Paddy, like, you're an idiot. Like, delete, delete your tweet. Blackface is racist. Don't be stupid, Paddy. Don't lecture David Lammy on what is and is not racist, Paddy. Might be, might be an idea for you. Um, but also plenty of people tweeted things like, so many people look for reasons to be offended. It's a great outfit, funny, and the lady is a clown. <laughs> you know, uh, you know. So he re- he was retweeting people sort of from both sides of the argument, but he was retweeting plenty of people saying, uh, and he he wrote himself, I think, saying, "How exactly was he supposed to impersonate her without darkening his skin?" <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing. There's there's one obvious way to. Avoid having to do that. You don't necessarily have to do the impersonation. No. That's you, one possible way around that. You don't have to. No, what, what is interesting about this is, is Paddy Barkley, who is, who is uh, a senior enough journalist. Um, he is, I'm not sure exactly what, what age he is. I would guess 60-ish. Um, he, he's been around for a while. He's not, he's not like some, you know, clown straight out, of, straight out of clown college. You know what I mean? Some wet behind the ears young clown. Uh, he, <laughs> and yet he evidently was was sort of a little. He didn't realize that this was kind of not something you do. I mean, maybe if you grow up watching a certain amount of television on in the UK in the sixties, seventies, nineteen eighties, maybe you might kind of think, well, what's the big deal about that? I mean, and uh, you know, it is. <sighs> It's something which I suppose if you're confused, you could go and, and read about. But essentially it has to do with the fact that uh, it's kind of the, this tradition of blackface, uh, is, you know, which is say white actors dressing up as black people um, is something which has a long, uh, long history, particularly in the United States, uh, where, you know, they would dress up as, as black people and then perform various uh, stereotypes, various... Uh, racist stereotypes um, and you know obviously every, everyone thought this was great but you know oftentimes it's not you know white actors or black actors are not even allowed it's like white actors dressing up as, as black actors essentially it has to do with the fact that you know you're turning what for black people is not this is not a joke for, for black people like racism you know slavery this is the stuff that's happening in, in the United States at that time this is not funny like this is not the stuff of haha like this is a laugh for us you know but white people are doing this in order to uh well yeah, it is yeah, it's, laugh, it, it's yeah. funny it's funny for them it's a joke you know it's just it's just a joke where's your sense of humor have you had a sense of humor bypass it's like it's not a good it's not a good joke you know it's and this is kind of a this is a, a, an argument which has been happening for a long time so which is why lots of people were tweeting patty barkley saying i can't believe you're saying this still mate you know this sort of stuff lenny henry made his name sending up white characters so so it wasn't I would say the best day for Paddy Barkley on on Twitter. He was he waded into one of these areas which he he, he he I don't think he was thinking too carefully. He was offering a lot of badly informed opinions and and he he ended up looking somewhat foolish. But not as foolish, Owen. Not as foolish as the uh, star of the French national team, Antoine Griezmann. So having seen this Paddy Barkley stuff earlier in the day, I was it, it struck me as a stunning a stunning coincidence that around nine o'clock or so, I, I happen to look again at Twitter, and what do I see but a picture of Antoine Griezmann, tweeted from Antoine Griezmann's account saying, 80s party with a basketball emoji and a crying laughing emoji, and Antoine Griezmann is there fully blacked up, fully blacked up, oh, 
wearing a wearing a, a kind of a, an afro wig in a Harlem Globetrotters outfit. And I thought, you what? You you what? And then, so I was like, okay, I'll look at the replies here. The replies were, as you can imagine, even more consternation than the replies for Paddy Barkley. Uh, given that Griezmann has got what, four million or so followers, and Griezmann had then tweeted shortly after, I think the party atmosphere was beginning to sour a little bit. He was like, "Oh, come on, guys! Uh, I'm a fan of the Harlem Globetrotters and their and their belly puck. You know, they're great era. It's it's a you know, it's a homage. It's a tribute. Use the word. And uh, uh, and anyway, so he continues to get hammered, and then he was like. I'm sorry for any offence I may have caused and deleted the photo. Yeah, I recognise that it was clumsy on my part. If I hurt some people, I am sorry. I thought, Jesus, this is just the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Like, how could he have thought that... How long did it take to put on all the, all the paint? Like, how At long... At some stage in that, that extremely lengthy process, surely he should have said, maybe this... I can see... I, I myself, I see how hilarious this is. But maybe there are some people out there to whom this might not actually be that hilarious. It's just it's just incredible to me that nobody could have said, Antoine, like, are you, are you serious? Could you not pick a different costume? This is, you know, not a this is not a good idea for a costume. Evidently nobody in his in his group, in his surrounds, was able to put forward this opinion. He Antoine Griezmann plays for the French national team, which honestly is I do not think there is a more racially charged team to play for in all of sport. I, I literally don't think there is. The South African rugby team, maybe. Maybe the South African rugby team. But, you know, you've got... I mean, the South, South, South Africa is another real, a special case. I mean, we're talking about a country which had, which had an officially racist constitution until, like, what, 1990? You know, whereas France has had an officially non-racist you know, system since 1789. <laughs> uh, I mean, which, you know, so Fra- France, is a, France is a curious country. I mean, we spoke before about that, that documentary they made, Les Bleus, and, and it is, Les Bleus, which is on Netflix. It's, it's quite interesting if, if anyone hasn't seen it. Um, but when you see the history of this team looked at over the last 25 years or so and all put together, like in two hours, it's absolutely amazing how many racial controversies they've had. Because particularly in France, um, the question of race is this huge uh, political issue there, something people are always talking. And the team is often used by people to sort of advance their own agenda, you know, they, or they read things into what's happening in the team. You know, when they had this big thing at Nysna in, in 2010 in the World Cup, like, oh, these rebels, these scum, you know. Uh, this is People were calling the players scum, you know. You had Patrice Evra was, you know, the, the leader of the, the rebels, and it was clearly like a, a really sort of racially charged tone to the way that they were talking about this. And I just thought, is it like Griezmann has actually been in the middle of this, not for that long, but I mean for a couple of years. You know, most of his teammates in this team are black. How, how, how did he think, how did somebody like him think this? It's quite, it, it's quite astonishing. I mean, I was trying to find out more about the history of blackface in France. I mean, it doesn't seem to be as big a, uh, a historical... Uh, or, or not as spoken about a thing as it is in the United States, particularly. I mean, the United States has got a more troubled racial history than most countries, I would say. Um, so it is evidently the case that Griezmann didn't realize this was a problem. Although, as Paddy Barclay's day on Twitter made obvious, there's plenty of people in the UK where this, this has been, it, it, it has been sort of generally, you don't do that. And there's plenty of people still going, oh, what? I don't, I don't really think it's... You know, it's why, why shouldn't I get to make a joke out of someone else's historical tragedy? Why shouldn't yeah. I? Yeah, and the Griezmann thing probably isn't going to change the minds of those people. No, I mean, they, they, I'm sure they'd be, they'd be like, uh, oh, you know, there's uh, Greasy. He's um, what a lark. Yeah, um, but look, that was uh, they were the two, the two big things: City and Greasy. Uh, we honourable mention zone for yeah, Mohamed Salah. Uh, who has scored 20 goals, which is ridiculous. Um, 20 goals already. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, uh, I saw Raphael Hunterstein tweeted, some, uh, tweeted he's like, uh, he's turning into Iron Robin. Everyone knows what's going to happen, but no one can do anything about it. And I thought, well, is he, though? Is he? Because if you look at his goal against um, Bournemouth yesterday, he actually burns the guy on the outside first. 
which and then comes back inside. Then comes back on the now, inside. Now the second fella, apologies, that bore the players for me not being able to identify them. Really should have seen what was coming there. The angle he was coming back on. It was <laughs> you know the Robin and the Salah position where the. They make it tricky because you don't know what they got. He had no option. He was coming, cutting back in from the end line, practically running back towards the penalty running spot. Running back towards the penalty spot. I would have said, just do whatever is in your power to stay on his left foot. And if he does something magical, hugging the end line, you're you're just gonna. The manager's not gonna kill you for that. But it was a nice finish. Mm. Uh, I, I still think my highlight of the weekend though was Mark Hughes shouting at Arnautovic <laughs> that he was a fucker. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what must have ended well between I, them. I don't know what the big problem was there. I mean, Arnautovic had this hilarious game for West Ham against Stoke, where he missed a bunch of chances. Then he kept getting closer. He kept. He, first of all, he was missing wildly. Then he started hitting the woodwork, and eventually he nailed one in. Yeah. And and then he was subbed off, and the whole crowd was going ballistic. Like they hate him so. Much. They hate Arnautovic more than Arsenal now. I don't know what he did to be so hated by Stoke. I mean, I guess they're just they're passionate fans. Passionate and emotional fans, and I suppose he used to play for them. Now he plays for someone else. They don't like him. Uh, he was raining shots down on their goal. Eventually scored, did the celebration, uh, and uh, they they didn't like what they saw. Oh, and neither did neither did Mark Hughes. That's it for today's report on sport. He's just a crying big baby, but you cannot call it a player a baby. Coach. And we never said they are baby. He's just a crying big baby. And you cannot call a player a baby. There have been a couple of big pieces written about Man City in the last couple of weeks in the likes of The Guardian and The Financial Times. But we're talking now to Nicholas McGeehan, who's a human rights researcher with a focus on the Gulf and has written about the club from a slightly different perspective. Nicholas, thanks very much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. You are talking, well certainly you begin your piece by talking about torture and human rights abuses, starting with a description of a particularly violent act that, that took place um, in that part of the world. Can you tell us what, what exactly happened and what link it has to Manchester City? Yeah, it was a, it was a tape that surfaced in 2009 uh, in the United States. And, and what it depicted was um, Sheikh Issa bin Zayed al-Nayan torturing a former business partner of his in the desert. Um, so so the, the man was being held down and they were beating him uh, with cattle prods. They were beating him with uh, sticks with iron nails sticking out of them, driving over him with an SUV. Um, and what was interesting about the tape was was that when it surfaced, it was only a few months after um, Sheikh Mansour had bought Manchester City. Um, but no one seemed to make the link between Sheikh Issa and Sheikh Mansour uh, because they're brothers, in fact. Um, and I guess I started the piece... Um, to show uh, basically just <laughs> quite how brutal um, the Al Nayan family um, have been, both in terms of their um, personal implication in criminal activity, but also their serious implication in human rights abuses. And you know, having sort of followed Manchester City's rise um, and Abu Dhabi's involvement for some time, it was clear to me that people weren't really aware of, of who runs that club. Um, or indeed aware of of, um, of how abusive they are. So who does run that club? Can you tell us what maybe what, what people the impression that people are under that you think is not quite the true version? Yeah, I mean, I've gone out to Manchester for a couple of years now and spoken to people about the issue. I think the sort of general sense is that it's run by some wealthy sheikh called Sheikh Mansour, who's a businessman with perhaps connections to the royal family. I personally don't believe it's anything to do with Sheikh Mansour. I think his role is probably very minimal. Manchester City uh, do have, they, they have had a banner um, at the grounds, you know, Manchester thanks Sheikh Mansour and this this type of stuff. He, and he visited the club on 
one occasion that I'm aware of um, in the nine years. Yeah, he visited it once. Visited him once in nine years. He's, you know, we're expected to believe he's put 850 million pounds. That's a loss of his own money into the club, but he's only been once because he didn't like the fuss it caused. Um, so, I mean, I don't buy it on on that basis, but but really, I don't buy it because the guys who actually run the club are the key lieutenants um, of his older brother, who's the crown prince of Abu Dhabi. Um, now, that that sort of leads you to the the different conclusion that Manchester City is run by the Abu Dhabi government, which is which is what I believe. So tell us a bit then about the, the, the um, prince that you're talking about, the older brother of Sheikh Mansour, Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nayyan. I mean, this is this is this is a guy who is known in the Middle East by his initials MBZ, or he's he's certainly known in the media that I read uh, by MBZ. He's uh, a very a big player, power player. Who is he? Yeah, he's he's an extremely big power player. I mean, there are a lot of people who think that that the rise to power of Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia was partly related to the support of MBZ in Abu Dhabi. Um, he, yeah, he's, he's the all-powerful ruler um, of the United Arab Emirates, um, of which Abu Dhabi is, is the most powerful emirate. Um, he's a very charismatic man. Um, he's clearly very um, aggressive um, in terms of his foreign policy. He was, um, he was involved in the Kuwait um, crisis in the first Gulf War, um, and apparently that led to him being... Um, very concerned about the, the fragility, the vulnerability of the Gulf states. So he's turned Abu Dhabi into a very militaristic, very nationalistic state, uh, which brooks absolutely zero dissent, and which is involved in various conflicts uh, around the region, not least Yemen, um, where, you know, where the humanitarian disaster has been very well documented. Um, so he's a dangerous guy, um, and, and that's who's behind Manchester City. I mean, what evidence is there to link him, apart from the fact that, say, Khaldun al-Mubarak, uh, who is the chairman of Manchester City, is, um, is supposedly the, also the right-hand man of MBZ? Yeah, I mean, I think that is pretty powerful um, evidence in and of itself. Um, I mean, there's no suggestion that Sheikh Mansour is, is particularly prominent in political decision-making. It's all coming from MBZ. Um, so the fact that Khaldun is, is in that position and is also the, the sort of CEO of, of Mubadala, which is um, which is Mohammed bin Zayed's sort of investment and development um, business, um, that that's very significant. Also, the the fact that you know Simon Pierce, uh, who is another Manchester City director, is basically MBZ's media advisor. Um, so so that's a further indication. And you know, as I mentioned in, in the article, um, there were a series of leaked emails um, which came out earlier this year. Um, from the hacked email account of the UAE ambassador to the United States, which which again point to the fact that, um, or, or to the key involvement of Carl Doon and Simon Pierce, um, and again point to the the fact that it's MBZ's fingerprints who are over Manchester City, and that Mansour is is probably just a front man. Do those emails reveal anything about the motivation behind the? ownership of Manchester City, why these people want to own a football club, which is something that I think exercises people's football fans' minds. What, what exactly is in it for them? Because we know it doesn't make them particularly, in fact, a lot of time it loses them money. Yeah, I mean, that's something I've puzzled over for a while. So, so for me, they were fascinating. I mean, the, the most interesting ones relate to the purchase of, um, or the, fran- you know, the attempt to set up a franchise in, in New York. Um, now, now, just before they, they sealed the franchise deal, Simon Pierce, who's a Manchester City director, wrote a memo um, in which he outlined the, you know, the possible reputational implications of, of pursuing the deal. Um, and what he talked about was, you know, he said there's a real concern that the Abu Dhabi vulnerabilities could be brought into play, uh, by which he meant, you know, the bad record on women's rights, the bad record on LGBT rights, uh, the relationship with Israel. Um, um, so, so just to be clear there, just to be clear there, Nick, what you mean is that he is he's writing um, basically a memo intended for a city football group audience where he's where he's saying, you know, one possible risk is that uh, bad publicity regarding the state of Abu Dhabi in, in the areas that you've just uh, mentioned, you know, criminalization of homosexuality, not recognizing the state of Israel and a bad record or, or you know, problems uh, regarding the rights of women, that this could uh, impact adversely on City Football Group's image? 
Precisely, yeah. He was he was concer- concerned that a well organized New York opposition to the group would, would focus on these um you know, these abuses and these problems. Um and that, that was something they had to take into consideration. But he also said he also said that walking away from the deal um would, would prevent them from making a big play in New York City. Um so what exactly did he mean there? That's the, the sort of key line for me. I mean, is he talking about you know turning out a f- successful football franchise? Well, I don't think that really makes a lot of sense. I mean, t- to me, it's about gaining influence in a place like New York, um, and that's something that they've done very effectively in Manchester. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm always a little. How do you think it exactly works? This business of gaining influence. I mean, you know, as as some of the other articles. Uh, some of these um, glowing long reads about Manchester City have have made clear. You know, this City Football Group is is a huge global operation now. Um, but I wonder what kind of influence can they really be getting from setting up centres in places like Melbourne, you know, Uruguay, Girona, New York City is, is I suppose a a capital of a few things. It's not just a, a football town. Um, but, but you know, how do you think it? How do you think it works? What, how does that sort of strategy actually work? How do you gain influence from owning football clubs? Yeah, I mean, those those, those things puzzle me as well. Precisely the point you, you've mentioned. I mean, what the hell has Uruguay got to do with anything? I mean, I suspect if I had to guess, it's that there is a there is a vision of Ferran Soriano, who's the CEO, um, and that he is probably very personally committed to this idea of a global footballing franchise and one that's going to be sustainable. But I think the motives of the of the men who empower him, who employ him, are entirely different. Um, so, so Soriano's motives may, entire, as I say, may be completely different from the motives of, of the real guys behind it, MBZ and co. Um, so I can I can sort of make that thesis for New York City and for Manchester City. It's it's a lot harder to to follow through when you're talking about Uruguay and Yokohama. Um, so that's that's my best guess at it. Yeah, I mean, there there are interesting things there though. In, you know, in these emails. You know, this guy Yusuf al as you said, was a UAE um, ambassador to the United States and for some reason was running a Hotmail email account, which got hacked. And, you know, uh, you mentioned one um, in which uh, Amnesty International, this is a couple of years ago, September 2015, uh, Amnesty International were uh, talking about uh, raids in Yemen, and the, the quotes is a pattern of raids targeting heavily heavily populated sites, including a mosque, a school, and a market. And Yusuf Al Atayba sent an email in which he outlined a strategy to limit the political fallout, at least temporarily urge caution when selecting military targets. He wrote, and one of the people on the list receiving the email was Khaldun Al Mubarak, the chairman of Manchester City. Not a lot of football club chairmen are receiving this this kind of email, I would guess. Yeah, not a lot of football club chairmen are, you know, sort of implicated in the humanitarian disasters. I mean, that's that's the sort of power of that. I think it's more serious than that, and, and I wish to God I could fight that there's a trove of these emails. I actually found an email in which Khaldun Mubarak replied to that, and he replied, good memo. Um, now, if I, if I find that uh, that memo, you know, you know, I'll add it to the piece, and I'll edit the piece, because I, I think it's more more serious than the fact that he just received the email. But that's the level um, that's the level of person we're talking about. These are people who move at those levels. These are people who wage wars in foreign countries, who wage wars with catastrophic effects and, and, and allegations of war crimes. Um, so it's a far cry from, you know, the previously sort of comical dodgy football owners. We have been speaking about the the kind of morality then of of um, of you know can you look at the? Can you separate the football from from what goes on behind it? You know, in the sense that uh, the, the the football is one thing; it sort of lives in a, in a in a separate world. And though it's being funded by, you know, this organisation which has uh, all of these dubious links, is it something which, in your head, people can can compartmentalise without having without serious moral misgivings? I mean, is it a case of look, you know? There's always been dodgy chairman in football. This is just taking things. Uh, <laughs> this is just an extension of, of something we've seen before, and uh, you know, let's not worry about this. What about you know the game? The game has has merit in its own right and and should be sort of assessed on its own on its own merits. Yeah, I mean that, that's sort of the genius of buying a football club because you put people into that that dilemma. You know, I mean, it comes through very strongly. You know, in, in the quote you often run in the show, you know, the Parkinson quote about football's about about getting away from all that stuff. Mm. So it, it makes it it makes it very difficult for people to um, to sort of make that decision. Um, I mean, I, I guess that's up to 
everyone to make their own decision on how they feel about that. And I think a lot of people probably feel very uncomfortable about it and just look away from it. Um, and I, I don't even think I'd blame them for doing that. Um, I mean, the argument I've sort of tried to make, and I, I don't exactly know how to make it so clearly, is that there, there could be more practical problems with football because these guys don't care uh, about the clubs. These guys are funding a European football arms race, you could argue, and they really don't give a toss about football. Um, and they're quite intent to destroy each other and, and would do so in actual battle <laughs> if um, if it came to it. So, so you know, it's more than the moral dimension to this it's what happens when they fall out of love with football uh, or when they you know decide that it doesn't serve their interests anymore what's going to happen to the game then well what is going to happen to the game then then do you think is not is, is there just not a shed load of money going to come from somewhere else potentially you know i, I don't know it may be that this is sustainable um but again you know the point the article tries to make is these are not the type of guys you want involved in football because they're abusive um uh, and they're in it to to serve their own interests which are you know malign Okay, Nicholas McGeehan, we'll uh, tweet a link to that article and let people have a bit of a deeper dive. Listen, great to chat to you. Thanks a million. Thanks very much. See if you don't get this out with Motherwell, you're away, mate. Your bags in your desk, boom. Your bags in your desk, boom. I mean it, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big Terry Butcher in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Beat no beat, a tick no beat, a tick no, a tick no, a tick no beat. Just so soft, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight. You don't deserve the fans. Listen to fans. Just need to fucking work, wouldn't it? You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grip! the biggest fool in Manchester. Where do you stand on that moral dilemma, Ken? Just briefly, are you are you okay in following the football and putting the other stuff to one side? It's difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, this is a team that has got a lot of the top sort of the top uh, people in the game. I mean, it's clearly, it's not something that footballers think about. You know what I mean? Oh, should I go work for these guys? Nah. Why not? Of course, they've got Guardiola, they've got the amazing training facilities, great salaries, wonderful teammates, opportunities to win, loads of stuff. My journey through life is actually one of self-actualization. So I'm going to try and just become the best footballer that I can be. Yeah. And, you know, the ancillary stuff, well, you know, maybe those other people, they should try to become the best owner uh, that they can be. Yeah. But for me, I'm just going to try and, you know, stay in my lane. It's pretty natural, though, to think like that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. maybe what it would be. I mean, I mean most, most people... Trump's all... The lure of Guardiola surely trumps any potential factors pushing you away from City. Especially when when it's when it's very distant, you know, you don't really think. Does everybody think to themselves when they're deciding whether to work for a company who's the ultimate owner of this company? Who am I really working for here? Does everybody do that all the time? I know I didn't. I know I certainly haven't always done that um, because you you know at some point you've got to try and. You know, earn some money to pay the rent. Uh, maybe footballers are in a more privileged position. They actually can't afford to pick and choose who they work for. Although, you know, another thing that we should that we shouldn't forget, it's not just that we're talking about. There, there are unique sort of aspects to this to this ownership to to Qatar and uh, and Abu Dhabi's clubs, uh, which have to do with the totalitarian nature of the states that they come from, or you know, the the they're, they're monarchies, you know. We're talking about royalty who have who have absolute authority, which isn't the case in lots of other countries. But it's fundamentally an expression of the same uh, the same sort of capitalist system, you know, that you see with the the guy who owns Arsenal, the, the people who own Manchester United. You know, we're we're talking about this in different ways. You know, you're not you, you're unlikely to see um, a YouTube video. I think of a relative of Stan Kroenke with a cattle prod, you know, demanding where, asking a business rival where his money is. But, uh, but you do have if you if you read that book we've talked about a while ago, the Billionaires Club, you see some some examples of of some bad practices. You see some similar things about the Glazers. You can see this way, and I mean, you know, we haven't mentioned Abramovich, 
one point that Nick McGee makes in that piece is, is how dependent European football is on this money now. I mean, it's not just City and Paris Saint-Germain. He makes the point also Bayern Munich have sponsorship from Qatar. Barcelona obviously recently did. Real Madrid have sold their naming rights of their new stadium to Abu Dhabi. You know, they're, you're the, and they're the top five favourites for the Champions League. These are the biggest clubs in Europe. Well, you know, Man City and PSG are, are not anyone's idea necessarily in the traditional sense of being the biggest clubs. But, you know, these are the big, this is where the big players want to play now. And that's a, that money is, has become a dependency. It's an addiction. You know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, you said, where is it? As you, you asked me, where are we going to go? Like, I, mean, I don't think there's, there's anything to replace that money. Once you're dependent on it, then it's, it's going to keep coming. I mean, this, this seems, strikes me as a permanent arrangement. If you're still struggling to get your head around your Christmas shopping, why not grab a super stylish new World Service t-shirt for that independent member-led broadcasting fan in your life? Probably you. They're available on secondcaptains.com if you want to have a look. Even if you decide not to buy one, you can at least spend a minute or two ogling Richie Sadler, who models them quite beautifully. What a frame, or What a frame. What's this? Maybe I'll just look to the side coquettishly. Hmm? <laughs> oh, you're taking a photograph of me. Oh, I'd really rather you didn't, but there you go. <laughs> These t-shirts are available to non-World Service listeners, but you Monday-only people will not get the 10% members discount. 10% discount if you are a footy sign-up member of the World Service. Thanks very much, Ken. Thanks, Murph. Thank, Thank you. you. Oh, Thanks, guys. Again. Talk to you during the week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.